Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is from Psalm 63. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word. Do you want to know God more fully? Do you want to draw closer to God? Do you desire a greater intimacy with him? Would you like to be like the psalmists who were so close to God? They poured out their souls to him. They shared their joys and their sorrows, their victories and their defeats, their faith and their questions, their trust and their doubts. We hear their personal cries for help and forgiveness for comfort and deliverance, justice and transformation. They were people who truly sought after God, and yet they often felt distanced from him. And that's what we see in Psalm 63. Although David was described as a man after God's own heart, he felt distant from God. He hungered and thirsted for God, who seemed so far away. Psalm 63 shows us how David found God when God seemed so distant, and how we can do the same. Let's pray. Our Lord, I ask that you meet me, that you meet us with your presence that it will be a reminder that you are always there. You are here now, and you are always there for us, regardless of our feelings. Teach us the way to draw ever closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, observed that the spirit and soul of all the Psalms are contracted into Psalm 63. The psalm was so central, he said, quote, it was decreed and ordained by the earliest church fathers that no day should go, go by without the public singing of this psalm. So if we want to go to the psalms to see what it means to be close to God, Psalm 63 is a great place to go. If we want to see how we can move closer to God, we can look at David as he struggled with God and during a very dry spiritual time in his life. As we approach Psalm 63, we read the subtitle says, 
a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And this is most likely referring to the time when Absalom, his son, had orchestrated a coup and usurped his throne. And so David had to flee into the wilderness for his life. He disgraced, rejected. He'd lost everything. And he faced an uncertain future. And during that time, he wrote, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David was in a desert-like region in northern Judah. And he felt spiritually what he was experiencing physically. He felt spiritually dry. He was searching for God because he felt empty. He thirsted for God because his spiritual life seemed to have no water sustaining him. He was to the point of fainting in his desire for God. See, we can all feel deserted when our worlds turn upside down. David's world had turned upside down. He descended from being ruler over a nation and over the armies to being pursued by those same armies that had been loyal to him. He fell from being honored as royalty to being shamed and hunted like a wild animal. From a luxurious life, living in a palace with lavish feasts to scrounging for food in a desert-like land. But he didn't pity himself. He wasn't groaning about his situation. He was just trying to pursue God. And we see that his response was that he, to remain committed to God, to behold God, to praise God, and to trust him. See, David was physically, emotionally, and spiritually distressed as he fled Absalom. He felt that distance from God. Yet his first words are, God, you are my God. That's where he planted himself. He didn't waver in his commitment to God despite what he was going through. God remained his God. There was no other God, no other person, or no other thing that he would pursue outside of God himself. That isn't always the case for us. We know people who grew up as Christians, served in the church, who, who walked away from God when their world seemed to collapse, when God didn't measure up to what they wanted him to be and do what they expected God to do. They felt God's promises were empty, and so they walked away. Instead, David doubled down in his commitment. He intensified his search for God. When he was in the middle of physical and spiritual desert experience, he recommitted himself to the one true God. My God, you are my God. See, there's nothing in life that could take him away from God. Nothing that could dampen his pursuit of God. 
He longed for God, not for what he could get from God. Can we say that? See, he didn't pray for victory or to regain his throne, to restore his honor or to recoup his former life. He simply pursued God because that's what he wanted. He missed God more than he missed the power, the prestige, or the pleasures of his former life. He sought God. He thirsted for God. His journey back to God began with an com unwavering commitment to him. So it leaves us with the question, will we remain committed to God no matter what? Are there any circumstances in our lives, any disappointments with God, any tragedies in our world, any pressures from our culture, any lack of a sense of God's presence that would have us pursue idols that would replace God? Are we ready to declare with David, God, you are my God, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how I feel? See, without this commitment, we will not endure in our pursuit of God. We won't persevere long enough to come out the other side with a deeper, more intimate relationship with God, the one that David found. So when, when you feel far from God, what do you do? David went into the presence of God. We see in verse 2, he, pursued, he felt thirsty, so I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now, David couldn't be referring to the literal sanctuary that was in the tabernacle in Jerusalem, because only the priest could go into the sanctuary only the high priest could go into the inner sanctuary where the presence of God was. He can only do that once a year. David was not a high priest. He wasn't a priest. So he was speaking figuratively of that similar experience of being in God's presence. And so when he entered God's presence, he beheld God's power and glory. Just as Isaiah did when he had a vision of God. We read it in Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other, saying, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Although David didn't have the same vision, he knew God in the same way. When we are from far from God, we need to move toward him like David did. We need to enter his presence and reflect on his power and his glory. 
When we see his glory, we will begin to move ourselves off our thrones, the throne of our lives, and begin to put God there. A sense of God's holiness will lead us to realize our unworthiness. Just as it did Isaiah. He responded after seeing God, Woe is me! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Being in God's holy presence caused Isaiah to feel devastated and hopeless, anticipating God's judgment. Who could possibly stand in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God without being consumed about fear of impending judgment? Only those who think too highly of themselves or too lowly of God. Isaiah did neither because he saw God on his throne. But God didn't leave him in his fear. We read in verses 6 and 7, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Isaiah was forgiven completely. His sins had been paid for. They were atoned for. Not by what he did, but because of the sacrifice that was represented by that burning coal that was taken from an altar of sacrifice. And we know that foreshadows the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. That brings us forgiveness and atones for our sins. God didn't leave Isaiah in his sin. He forgave him. God had done the same for David. And though he was, though David was in awe of God's power and glory, he also knew God's love. He was not intimidated. We read in verse 3, Because of your steadfast love, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Now, put yourself in Isaiah's or David's position. You're standing in the presence of God. You see his holiness. You see your sinfulness. You expect a spiritual death sentence for all of eternity. But instead, you're forgiven. You're exonerated. Not only that, you're honored. You become a privileged son or daughter of God. So what would you feel? Perhaps you'd feel that God's steadfast love is better than life and that you wouldn't couldn't help but praise him like David. 
See, David reconnected with God by spending time with him, beholding his power, glory, and love. And when we reflect on these, we're going to recenter our lives around God. One pastor likened life to a washing machine. When the wet clothes get unbalanced, the washing machine begins to shake and totter and clangs and we hear the banging and we run down or up or sideways wherever our laundry is today. And we stop the machine and we take the wet clothes and recenter them around the center. When our lives are clanging and shaking, we need to stop and recenter our lives around God's power, glory, and love. See, his power is a reminder that God is in control. Nothing takes place outside of God's will and God's plan. His glory is a reminder that life is about him much more than it is about us. It's about him and his purposes, that ultimate purpose to glorify him. And his love is a reminder that he has our best interests at heart in everything that takes place in our lives. When we know these, we can take shelter under the shadow of his wings. Although none of us will probably have an Isaiah experience, we can still behold God's glory, power, and love. They're on display throughout the scriptures. There are many passages and stories that can help us see these, and we need to immerse ourselves in them. But there's one place above all places where we see these come together, and that's at the foot of the cross. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why the authors of the book God Attachment wrote, we need to continually come back to the heart of the gospel let it sink deeper and deeper into our souls. Whenever we get bored with the thought of God rescuing us from sin and shame, we're drifting away from God. Martin Luther observed, the truth of the gospel is the central article of Christian doctrine. It's necessary that we know this truth well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads. We need to meditate regularly on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The author said we need to continually come back to the gospel. Luther wrote that we need to beat it into our heads continually. And David wrote in verses 6 through 8, When I remember you upon my bed... Meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And we know where God is our ultimate help is at the cross. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. See, beholding God isn't a part-time activity for David, and it shouldn't be for us. He meditated on God often throughout the night. He was drawn there because his remembrance of God's help 
No matter what he was going through, he could look at the past and know God's in control. He could recall the time when King Saul also unjustly sought his life to keep David from ascending to the throne, and God saved him. He could look back at how God rescued the chosen people from Egypt. He could look back at the countless times God rescued them from the enemies. See, he knew God would never abandon his commitment to love, that there is nothing that could separate him from the love of God. We need to do the same. We can look back at times in our lives when we thought God wasn't there, but in retrospect, we see he was in the middle of everything. We can turn to scriptures that highlight his power, his glory, and his love. And most of all, we can turn to the cross, the place of God's ultimate help. At the foot of the cross, it's impossible to question God's love. At the entrance to the tomb, it's impossible to question God's power. And when we reflect on the death and resurrection of Christ, it is impossible to question his glory. Jesus said, abide in me, abide in my love. So as David reflected on God's steadfast love, he couldn't help but burst out in praise. In verse 3 we read, my lips will praise him. Verse 4, so I will bless him as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Verse 7, I will sing for joy. And verse 5 we read, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. See, David's satisfaction was with God. And his praise of God. And this reminds me of the question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question is, what's the chief end of man? In other words, what's our purpose in life? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And David was fulfilling God's purpose for him as he glorified God through his praises and he found his ultimate satisfaction in God. See, the glory of God and our enjoyment are two sides of the same coin. When we glorify God, we will be enjoying him. And our enjoyment and satisfaction in God glorifies him. Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy would be complete. See, what was Jesus' joy that he wants us to experience? The joy was to know and glorify God the Father. That's what life is ultimately about. David, Jesus 
had that joy even as he went to the cross. David was able to sing praises with joyful lips even while he fled Absalom in the wilderness. David said, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You know, a renowned pastor noted that praise of God completes our joy. Praise completed David's joys. And I think this was, really came home to me at my son Stephen's senior awards ceremony. You know, Karen and I were there in the audience hearing award after award after award being given away, and we wondered if Stephen would be left out. And then they came to the Kavanaugh Award, the most prestigious award given at Natick High School, given to the most complete senior, considering athletic accomplishments, scholarship, loyalty, leadership, character, service to others. And as the presenter read the description of the winner, it became obvious that there was only two people who fit that description. We waited, and we finally heard her say, the Kavanaugh Award this year is presented to Stephen Daggett. I've never had such joy. It was nothing. That joy was so much greater, so much higher than any joy I had whenever I received any award. I experienced the same thing three years later when Christopher won that award. I, I feel the same joy whenever I hear about Karen's students telling her that she is the best teacher they've had throughout their entire educational career. I only wish I could have been there for the awards Karen won before I met her. Because my joy is hearing them praised. And my, my joy is, is great today, even telling you these stories as I praise them. You know, when we realize that our joy is complete in our praise. Won't that turn our whole understanding of worship together around? Our joy is completed when we praise God and glorify Him if we love Him. So as the armies closed in on David, he remained committed to God. He entered into God's presence, beholding his power, glory, and love. This resulted in his satisfaction, not in any circumstances, but in his relationship with God and his praise of God. And we see also he trusted God. He rested in God's sovereign plans. He was confident that God would win in the end. For him, that meant the defeat of Absalom and his regaining the throne. We read it in verses 9 through 12. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword 
They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. Not in the circumstances. He will rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The armies are all around him, and yet he has this confidence in his God. See, David wouldn't wallow in the present, decrying his fallen state, questioning God's goodness. Instead, he found his security in God, and he looked to the future that the God of steadfast love had for him. So we may not have a complete reversal of all the circumstances in our lives like David did when Absalom's armies were defeated. But we do have an assurance of a blessed future based on the great victory of Jesus Christ. A victory he's already won. He told his disciples shortly before he was arrested, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, whatever we're going through, we have the same choice that David had. We could bemoan our current circumstances, or we could look to our divine future. A future in which God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. A future about which Paul declared, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. A future that will culminate in Jesus Christ welcoming us into his divine presence for eternity, a future in which we will see Christ, and when we do, we will become like him, a future in which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do we look at now, or do we look at the future? In that future, our pursuit of God will be complete and we'll be in his sanctuary with him forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for this Psalm. We understand why it was read daily in the early church, sung daily. May it be close to our hearts. Keep us Keep us in your presence, focusing on your power, glory, and love, most of all, at the foot of the cross. Lord, we may not put it in the same terms as David did, but we want to know you better. We thirst for you. Amen.